This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, uh, our text this morning is verse 39. We are looking for the month of December at various texts in which Jesus explains specifically why he came into this world, what it is that he came to do. We know in general terms, we would say, well, he came to save us from our sins, and that's true. But Jesus gives some very specific statements about why he came into the world last week. We saw from John chapter 6, where Jesus, Jesus explained that he came into the world not to do his own will, but the will of the one who sent him. And as he explains, that will was to carry out a rescue mission, a mission of redemption, which the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, did through his suffering, his death, and his resurrection again on the third day. Today, we want to look at John chapter 9. Uh, our text, actually, that we'll be looking at specifically is verse 39, but I want us to begin reading in verse 35. This chap, These verses come at the end of chapter 9, which is about the healing of a man who was blind, man who had been blind from birth. And uh, as a result of what happened and interaction with the religious leaders, which we'll look at in just a few moments, he was cast out of the synagogue, in effect excommunicated, and then this conversation takes place after that action. Let's pick up our reading in verse 35. Hear the word of God. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. Thanks to the Lord. Let's pray and ask for his assistance as we study the scriptures together now. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your scriptures this morning, and as we study them, we pray for the light that only you can give. Open our eyes, open our hearts, Father, to receive the word of God, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That's the question with which this chapter begins. The question is on the lips of Jesus' disciples. 
It's a question that betrays a certain mindset, a certain cause and effect mentality, a certain mechanistic viewpoint that uh, is similar to that possessed by Job's friends. Remember when Job was suffering so terribly, his friends came to comfort him. And they were of comfort as long as they remained silent, but when they opened their mouth, things began to get a little testy between Job and his friends because their mentality was that the righteous don't suffer. The righteous are blessed. The righteous are protected. And here Job is suffering, so he must have done something terribly wrong. Job, what was it that you did that caused this calamity, this judgment to fall upon you? And Job maintains his innocence. Of course, we know the behind the scenes story that Job was being tested precisely because he was a righteous man. But Job's friends had this viewpoint that to suffer in this way, he must have really blown it somewhere, must have done something really, really wrong. Well, Jesus' disciples here share that same viewpoint. Here's this man, poor man, he's blind. He has been blind from birth. He has known nothing but darkness. He's never seen. And as Jesus' disciples contemplate this man, and as Jesus is there, opportunity to ask questions, uh, very much available. So they say, well, Jesus, who, who was the, the wrongdoer here? Was it this man or maybe it was his parents? Maybe this man had done something wrong, that he's blind, but, but maybe it's his parents. Since he was born blind, maybe that he was born blind was some punishment on his parents for something they did. We sometimes have that viewpoint, don't we? When something bad happens, when something painful enters into our lives, we sometimes are tending, uh, tend to think, well, Lord, you know, what, are you, what are you doing this to me for? What have I done to offend you that I'm suffering, that I'm afflicted in this way? Well, maybe God is disciplining you, chastening you for something, but possibly not. And in fact, Jesus takes a very different viewpoint on this man. Whereas the disciples see this as some divine justice, some punishment for wrongdoing, Jesus sees it as an opportunity. Jesus' reply to his disciples was, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Not that they were sinless, of course, but that this affliction was not the direct consequence of some sin. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus says, this is divine providence. This is not punishment. This is an opportunity that God had prepared in order to show his grace, in order to show his power. That's the same mindset that the Lord was teaching to Paul, of course, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul, having had this vision of glory lifted up to the heavens, is given this thorn in the flesh to keep him humble, to afflict him. And he prays three times that that might be removed. And the Lord says, no. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul probably thought, whatever it was, and of course much speculated and debated, that he could be more effective without it. But the Lord says, no, no. Insofar as that affliction weakens you, it is an opportunity for my power 
to be seen. And so Paul says he boasts in his weaknesses. For when he is weak, then he is strong. That very weakness, that very affliction was an opportunity for the glory of God, the power of the Lord to be seen. Well, that's the case with this man. Jesus says no, but it's so that the glory of God might be seen. The works of God might be displayed in him. Now, at the end of this chapter, Jesus makes this statement that we're looking at here in December, a statement of why he has come. And we see it in verse 39. And we'll look at it in light of the chapter, but we're going to organize our thinking today, our study today, around these statements that Jesus makes there in verse 39. He says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. So three things here. He came for judgment, he came for sight, and he came for blindness. First, Jesus says, I came into this world for judgment. Now, that might might strike you as a little bit strange, even a little bit harsh. And if you know your Bible, you might even go back and think, well, wait a minute. Jesus didn't come for judgment. I mean, after all, John 3.16, that great well-known verse of the Bible, uh, tells us Jesus was sent to save (coughs) those who believe in him. Whoever believes in him will not perish, have everlasting life. And then verse 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Right? And even Jesus himself says in uh, Matthew chapter 12, I'm sorry, John chapter 12, verse 47, rather striking statement, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And so we say, well, Jesus came not to judge, but he came to save. Why does he say here for judgment he came into the world? Well, there's a good reason for that. Because his very presence, his very, uh, his very incarnation, his very coming into the world is itself a judgment and produces judgment. How so? Well, it does so because when people are confronted with Jesus, they have to make a choice. They have to either be for Jesus or they have to be against Jesus, but they can't be both. So Jesus very coming into the world is like a knife that cuts. It, It separates. It divides. You either fall into the camp of receiving him, being for him, or you fall into the camp of resisting him and opposing him. And Jesus also makes this apparent in his own ministry. For example, through actions. We think of uh, Jesus going into the temple and with a whip clearing out the money changers who are defiling the temple, who are making this, this one place available to the nations, available to the Gentiles in the temple, into a market. A useful service, to be sure, but exchanging money, but in the process, making it into this place of business, this marketplace, instead of a place of prayer, a place of outreach. Uh, a rather harsh action to drive men and animals out of a place at the crack of a whip. That's something of a, a judgmental act. Uh, Jesus' words, as well, indicate something of this dividing, this, this judging 
nature of his ministry. He says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 35 or 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace. Isn't that what we celebrate at Christmas? Jesus came to bring peace to the world. Jesus says, don't come. Don't think I've come to bring peace. At least not in a certain sense. Now, peace with God, absolutely, and therefore peace among men. But there's another sense in which Jesus introduces discord. He says, I will put a son against his father, and I will set a daughter against her mother, and a mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law. A person's enemies will be members of his own household. Because you know, as well as I do, that when a person becomes a Christian, Even sometimes members of his own family begin to oppose him. Some of you have experienced that. Some of you have experienced alienation from your closest blood relatives because of your faith in Christ. And it's that discord, that separation that Jesus says that he came to bring. And not just the action that Jesus did, not just words that he spoke, but certainly people's response to him divides. We mentioned John 3, 17, that Jesus did not come to condemn the world. But the very next verse, verse 18, Jesus says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so response, a refusal to believe, a rejection of Jesus means that a person is already condemned. And we are already condemned. We're all condemned apart from Christ. The person who does not believe in Jesus is is already standing under judgment, under condemnation. And just by Jesus' very presence, people are forced to make a choice then and now. You either follow him with all of your being or you reject him. But there is no fence sitting. There's no neutral gray area, no middle ground. Jesus forces us to make a choice. He is Lord or he's not Lord. And that's exactly what we see, by the way, in John chapter 9, as well as throughout his ministry and throughout the history of the church. Wherever Jesus is proclaimed, a judgment comes in. You either are for him or you are against him. And so Jesus says, for that reason here, for judgment, I have come into the world. And we've seen that play out in chapter 9. Now, The judgment leads to in a couple of directions. We say he came first for judgment, and second, he came for sight. Now, the sight and the blindness are sort of the effects of the judgment, but we're considering them serially since that's the way they fall in the verse, one after another. But the sight and the blindness are the the results of that judgment, that distinction, that, that, uh, that decision that enters in in response to Jesus. So second, he came, he says, for sight, that those who do not see may see. Now, just as Jesus in John chapter 6 talks about himself being the bread that came down from heaven right after he had done this feeding of the 5,000, uh, this, this very physical, tangible miracle that illustrates that spiritual truth that Jesus talks about, that he himself is the bread of life. Not to go after loaves of bread, literally, but to pursue Jesus. Well, here, the same thing happens. Jesus says he has come that those who do not see may see. Now, this follows right on the heels of having healed a man who could not see, had never been able to see, but now can see. Now, we look back in John chapter 9, and we see how this played out. 
Jesus says in verse 5, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Again, another one of those I am statements he makes, echoing that, that the name of the Lord in Exodus 3 that we saw in our Exodus series, where Moses says, Who shall I say sent me? And the Lord says, Tell them I am has sent you. And Jesus, echoing that, says, I am the light of the world. And he spits on the ground, he makes some mud, and he puts it on the man's eyes. And he says in verse 7, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed, and the man came back seeing. Now, you think about that. That's not just a miracle of the eye, of the process, of the physical and biochemical processes of the eye to be able to to perceive light, but it's also a healing of the mind. This man had never seen. And it's not just for his eyes to begin working, it was necessary, but for his brain to be able to process all of the shapes and the color and the light and everything that we take for granted that goes into seeing. He had never seen before. Can you imagine what colors must have looked like to him? What daylight must, how dazzling that must have been to him. What an experience that must have been. But the focus really isn't so much on that as it is what happened within his heart. Well, the man comes back and neighbors had heard him, seen him, known him as a beggar all his life were saying, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg and said some, yes, it's him. Said Others said, well, no, but, but it sure looks a lot like him. He kept saying, yes, it's me, I'm the man. They said, well, what happened? How did did it happen? Verse 11, the man says, the man called Jesus came and made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash, went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. Well, obviously, they're dealing with something pretty significant here, so they do the only thing they know to do. They run to the Pharisees, religious leaders, very much in the esteem of the people, paragons of, of virtue and godliness, uh, real sticklers for the law of God. And uh, verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who formerly had been blind. Now, verse 14 notes something important here. It was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. And so the Pharisees begin to, to question uh, what he did, what happened here. We'll talk about them in a minute, but let's just go back to this physical miracle that took place, this physical response the man could see. Now, we, we gather that this made quite a splash from the reaction of the people, but the, the, the results of it continue, not just here in chapter 9, but in chapter 10, verse 21. There's much debate about Jesus. Some were saying, well, the man's insane. He's possessed by a demon. And others were saying, well, these aren't the words of somebody speaking for the devil. Besides, they say, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Obviously, this miracle made quite an impact. And even later in chapter 11, after Lazarus has died, you know, and Jesus goes to the tomb, shortest verse of the Bible, Jesus wept. Uh, verse 36, the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have also kept this man from dying? So you get the sense. People were talking about this miracle, this healing of this blind man and thinking about it for a long time. This this physical healing. But of course, underlying that was a spiritual transformation that took place. That this man had received spiritual sight too. Look down farther uh, in chapter 
uh, well, in chapter 9, uh, even verse 24, where the Pharisees interrogate the man, they say, what do you say of him? Well, I think he's a prophet. Uh, back up in verse 17, um, verse 30, the man in response to the Pharisees, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We, we know God doesn't listen to sinners. If anyone's a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. And then we see his perception, especially uh, in this conversation afterwards in verse 35. Jesus asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? One of Jesus' favorite titles, designations for himself, because it was a way of identifying himself as the Messiah without using that term, uh, the Messiah or the Christ, which is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew term Messiah. The Son of Man was an Old Testament term. That could just mean a person, a mortal, a human being. But given Old Testament overtones, it had messianic, a messianic flavor to it. So Jesus said, you believe in the Son of Man. And the, the man says, well, tell me who he is so that I can. And Jesus says to him, you've seen him. It's he who's speaking to you. And notice what he says, verse 38. Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Notice, by the way, Jesus accepts, he receives that worship. He doesn't object. He doesn't refuse it. Remember in Revelation, when John tries to worship the angel, the angel says, whoa, wait a minute, don't worship me. I'm just a created being. Worship God. Jesus receives the worship of this man. It is either the height of arrogance or it is Jesus' acknowledgement of his own Position is deity and worthy of the worship of his creatures. But the man says, Lord, that is self is significant. Lord, I believe. And, he, and, and as an expression of that, he worships Jesus. The man had sight, yes, but the man had sight. The man, by God's grace, had a new heart to perceive who Jesus was and his need of Jesus, his acknowledgement of Jesus, his belief, his faith in Jesus. And so Jesus says here that those who do not see may see. And we see that on two levels, the physical sight, but as the bread was indicating the need of our soul for Jesus, that physical sight the man had was an outward expression of that new perception that he had in his soul. And so we see Jesus' words borne out. The man doesn't just see with his eyes, but he says to Jesus, Lord, I believe, and he worships him. He takes the posture that any creature should take toward his creator. And certainly we who are new creatures in Christ should take toward Jesus. But Jesus also said that those who see may become blind. Now, in this passage, those who see are the Pharisees. Now, again, they had a high reputation for righteousness, but Jesus exposed them. It was just a reputation. It was just a veneer. It was it was this obsession with keeping outward technical details of the law while ignoring the real heart issues of love for God, love for their neighbor, a real concern to be obedient and and righteous when no one was watching. And Jesus, of course, in other places, takes them to task for that. But we see here demonstrations of their heart. For example, we see here a certain legalism, verses 13 through 17. Now, it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. 
And the Pharisees are upset by that. Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man's not from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. He's working, making that mud like that. Well, you know, this wasn't the only time Jesus tangled with the Pharisees and other of the Jewish leaders over the question of the Sabbath. But from Jesus' point of view, what better use of the Sabbath was there than to bring healing not just to this man's eyes, but to his soul? Wasn't that what the Sabbath represented? It represented rest. It represented relationship with the Lord. It represented uh, renewal in him. And that's exactly what Jesus expressed. Jesus wasn't breaking the Sabbath by any means, but he was breaking the Pharisees' traditions, and they didn't like that one bit. He doesn't keep the Sabbath, others said. Others of the Pharisees apparently said, how can a man who was a sinner do such signs? And they were divided to some of the Pharisees' credit. They, they were taking in some of this. And that's when they turn on the man and ask him. So there's a legalism here. There's also, in the part of the Pharisees, a refusal to believe. Just made up my mind, don't confuse me with the facts. And we see this uh, following. They ask the man, verse 17, what do you say about him? You open your eyes, what do you think of him? So I think he's a prophet. That's what the man says. Verse 18, some of the Jews didn't believe he'd been blind, received his sight. Well, Obviously, he wasn't blind because he can see now. And so they get the poor man's parents involved. They drag the parents in. They ask the parents, this is verse 19, is this your son? You say he was born blind. How does he now see? The parents said, well, we, we, yes, he's our son. Yes, he was, in fact, born blind. But verse 21, how he now sees, we don't know. We don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's old enough. He's not a child. Ask him. He'll speak for himself. And John notes, verse 22, his parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews. They may have been afraid to say, well, it's Jesus who healed him, and Jesus must be somebody. The Jews had already agreed if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So there's pressure here on the parents, on everyone, not to say anything good about Jesus. So the parents are being very evasive. He's their child. Yes, in fact, he was born blind, but we don't know how this happened. You need to ask him. They sort of put it back on their son. It's a little bit cowardly. Uh, they said, ask him. And so you have this, this refusal to believe the evidence, even trying to deny it. You know, eh, he wasn't really born blind. Well, in fact, he was. That's what happens. You also have a rejection of Jesus here. Verses 24 and following. Uh, the second time they asked the man been born blind. Verse 24, give glory to God. It's kind of like saying, tell the truth. We know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. The man answers, this man has no theological training, of course. All he knows is what happened to him. And that's what he says, verse 25, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. And they're up against that hard, cold reality. How do we deal with this? The man says, I don't know anything about him. I just know I was blind. Now I can see. They said, well, what do he do to you? How do you open your eyes? Verse 27, I've told you already. You wouldn't listen. Do you want to hear it again? Then he gets a bit cheeky. Do you also want to become his disciples? Maybe he wasn't being cheeky. Maybe he was sincere. Maybe they're asking these questions, the man thinks, because they really want to know about Jesus. Maybe follow Jesus. Or maybe he's just kind of goading them a little bit because he's tired of this interrogation, going back over the same things again and again. Do you also want to become, well, that set them off. Verse 28, they reviled him. You are his disciple, which wasn't really true at this point. But we are disciples of Moses. 
We know that God has spoken to Moses. As for this man, we don't know where he comes from. The man answers, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone's a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard of anyone opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He's getting a little bolder here. First he said, I don't know anything about him. Now he's saying, well, if he's not from God, he couldn't do these kind of things. So there's this, this rejection of Jesus through this man, continuing to sort of attack Jesus through him, getting upset when he would say anything good about Jesus. And then finally, there's in the Pharisees this persecution of true believers. Verse 24, they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? They don't deal again, ad hominem, to the man. They just attack him. You sinner, who are you to be teaching us? They realize they can't answer his arguments, so they just attack him. And they excommunicate him. They cast him out. Cast him out of the synagogue. He's out. The hypocrites in the synagogue cast out this true believer from the synagogue. Now, you see, that's the character of the Pharisees, at least some of them. Some of them apparently were really trying to struggle with this. Legalism, refusal to believe evidence, rejection of Jesus, persecution of those who do receive Jesus. Their kind is still with us. Even in the visible professing church, their kind is still with us. They claim to see. They claim to see so much that they cast out the true believers in Jesus. But in fact, they are blind. And this is what Jesus says. And they're not stupid. When Jesus says, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, those who see may become blind. Verse 40, some of the Pharisees heard him say these things, and they said, are we also blind? You talking about us, Jesus? They, they weren't stupid. They understood what Jesus was saying. But what Jesus says is kind of interesting. He doesn't just say, yes, you're blind. In fact, he seems to indicate they're not entirely blind. Notice what he says in verse 41. If you were blind, you would have no guilt. Now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Now there's some irony here because, in fact, they are blind. But they claim to see, so Jesus goes with that. He says, basically, your guilt is all the greater because you've rejected me while claiming to be somebody. By claiming to have knowledge, by claiming to see. Your guilt is, is all the greater. Your guilt remains because of what you claim. In fact, they were blind. If they would acknowledge their need, they would be okay. But they won't do it. And that's why Jesus says, those who do not see may see, and those who see, those who profess to see, those who've been church members for a very long time and really think they don't have anything more to learn, those who hold PhDs and teach in seminary chairs of New Testament, who say that they see, even as they explain away the resurrection of Jesus or try to, their guilt remains. Those who say, well, I know what I need to know from the Bible. I don't need to be in the Bible. I, I really need to be a teacher of others. I don't have anything that anyone can teach me. They claim to see, and yet there's a great blindness there that they themselves are, in fact, blind to. You see, Jesus does judge. There is a judgment because Jesus divides us into two kinds of people, as he indicates here. Those who are blind, but by God's grace, recognizing their blindness, come to Jesus and can see. And as here with the Pharisees, those who claiming to see, therefore remain in their 
blindness. Do you see? Do you see yourself for who you really are? A rebellious, sinful person, justly in yourself, deserving God's wrath and displeasure. Or blindly, do you see yourself as somebody who's pretty good, somebody God must be fairly pleased with, somebody who's doing okay, somebody who's got a pretty good shot at gaining entrance into heaven? What do you see? Do you see yourself as a sinner, as this man did? If you do, your response will be like that of this once blind man. He says, Lord, I believe. And he fell down and worshipped Jesus. He abases himself before Jesus. He gives himself entirely to Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus, the Son of Man? Do you worship him? Not just formally here as we're gathered in service on a Sunday morning, but do you worship him informally as your life on Monday and Tuesday and through the week is devoted to him, that it's your desire to do his will, that you do not only call him Lord, but in fact in your life and your heart acknowledge him as Lord, as this man did. Do others see that belief and see that worship in your life at home, at work? at school, wherever you might be, that you believe in Jesus, that you worship him. You know, at Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Jesus. Why did he come? Well, Jesus says here, for judgment, that those who don't see may see, and that those who see may remain blind. So pray to Jesus, beg of Jesus, who is the light of the world, that you might see that you might see him and see him more and more. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this passage. Wonderful miracle, wonderful account. But Father, please allow us to have had and to have the experience that this man had of seeing. And not just seeing with the eyes of the body, but seeing with the eyes of faith who we are, who Jesus is, that believing in him, We might be saved. We might have sight. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.